Hello and welcome to the first of the off-season team preview series here on the Three Bid League podcast. That is right, ladies and gentlemen. We are back for year six. We're like Grant Golden at this point. We've been around forever. We're going to stick around a little bit longer. As always, I'm Tyler, joined by my co-host, Matt. And we're going to split this year's series off into four parts. Next week, we will have the rebuilding teams of Richmond, St. Louis, Davidson, and LaSalle. The week after, the brand new rosters, UMass, Rhode Island, George Mason, and George Washington. And then we'll close it out with the favorites, Dayton, VCU, St. Bonaventure, and Duquesne. But if you're doing the math in your head, that means this week we're going with what you, Matt, called the possible breakout teams and what I call the Jesuit schools, St. Joe's, Loyola, and Fordham. That is a heck of a coincidence, and I promise when I sent you that list the other day, I did not put that together, but worked out perfectly that the three Jesuit schools in the conference are all, I would say, picked in the middle of the pack by most people, but each of them have the tools to have a really good season, especially in a year where it's going to be wide open in the A-10. I do think at this point from the people who, shall I say, pay semi-attention or more, because I think I think anyone who just parachutes in just assumes St. Louis is still going to be somewhere in like the top six or seven, and possibly even Davidson as well. But I think to the people who pay heavy attention to this conference, these are going to end up being the consensus five, six, seven in some order. Maybe somebody slips to eight, maybe St. Joe's jumps up to four, but I think for the most part, that's where we're going to find all of these teams. I I think so. And I I think to be clear too, as we usually do in our preseason preview series where we go through each of the rosters, this isn't necessarily our tiers for how we think the season's going to play out more just oh it's definitely not yeah i mean we're, i like we're keep at least one of these here. teams way better than one of the teams we have in the favorites yeah i, I definitely do too possibly and two we'll save that for the hot takes episode though which will come out right before the start of the season but yeah for the next couple weeks it's just breaking down the the rosters at a time where every school in the conference has the hopes of being good yeah, and we'll do this for anyone who's been listening the past few years. It'll be very similar to prior seasons. We'll give it about 10 minutes per team. I'll have the timer going. Uh, we no longer go over the key losses from the roster because for a lot of these teams, that's just too many guys to list. So we'll remind you who's back, uh, go into some key questions that we have, talk about some of the big-time newcomers, and then I know I personally have an X-factor for each team. And then at the end, right after that timer's done, we're going to add a little new piece here, and this is something that we'll be very interested to hear your feedback on as fans of these teams, which is what would be the mark of a successful season for this team? And we're trying to go at it from the fan perspective where – Attitudes are going to be a little different. Like, just to take an example, I think Fordham's expectations might be a little lower than they should be because their fans are still on the high from last year, and if they're good again, that's probably good enough for them. But at the same time, if Dayton finishes second but doesn't make an NCAA tournament, you better believe that that fan base is going to be calling for Anthony Grant's head. So it kind of it kind of differs from team to team pretty staunchly in this conference. Yeah, that reminds me too. I saw a great tweet right before we got on. If St. Louis goes 13-0 and in the non-conference, but wins enough games in the A-10 to get exactly 20 wins and missing all the postseasons, that would not be successful, even though it might be for the athletic director. But we're talking about the fans here. Yeah, and St. Louis, uh, God, I kind of can't wait to get to that one because I think the St. Louis expectations – might be wildly off kilter from fan to fan it's kind of, yeah kind of in a position dayton's been the last few years where there's some turmoil within the fan base it seems and just nobody's happy right now well the good thing with that one is everyone's line actually should be pretty similar given what they're bringing back big yeah. spoiler it's NCAA tournament or bust this year you only get so many cracks with teron holmes on your team Yep. (laughs) 
But we'll go into this this part here and three teams that are all kind of interesting from the expectation question because they're coming off of some bad times. St. Joe's, uh, like, things have been rough for about five years now. Loyola, obviously, last place last year. And Fordham coming off of a great year and a pretty good finish before that. But for the 30 years before that, they were Fordham, butt of the joke. So uh, everyone maybe with their guard down a little bit here. We'll kick things off with what I think right now is the most fascinating team in this league to try to project. And that is the St. Joe's Hawks. They bring back a lot of names that you're all going to know. Their entire season-ending starting lineup, Eric Reynolds, Lynn Greer, Cameron Brown, Casper Klocek, and Rashir Fleming are all back, as is the give-or-take high-scoring spark-plug guard Christian Winborn. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I would agree with you. This has been the most fascinating team over the offseason, probably the team that we've spent the most time on. And it really feels like a huge year for the St. Joe's program. Like you said, it's been a difficult time in the Billy Lang era. He started with a completely empty cupboard when he took over the job. And just whether it's injuries or guys leaving the program, they've never found their footing in the A-10. But this year, with the A-10 not having as many teams with high expectations it seems like the Hawks could take a step forward and having Eric Reynolds who we both agreed was the second best player in the conference in our last episode having a player of that caliber certainly elevates to the Hawks to a level we haven't seen the last few years yeah and it's not only that but for anyone who's just tuning in now they bring in quite possibly the best recruiting class into the A-10 We've talked about the redshirt freshman, Chris Sendoko, 7 foot 285. That is his official listing. This is a mammoth of a man. We've heard about the potential to be an excellent shot blocker with a three-point shot to go along with that. He could be he could be a runaway rookie of the year in this conference, but there's just so much of a mystery surrounding him. And then they also bring in three highly talented local guys, all from either Philly or Jersey, Sean Simmons, Xavier Brown, and Desheer Haskins. Oh, and Anthony Finkley. Uh, four, four decently or well-rated uh, new guys for them to go with their mystery big man. Yeah, and I think we have to start with Asandako because he has kind of tantalized everybody this summer really has big shoes to fill because the one major loss for the Hawks was former center Ejike Obina. And it seems like Asandako is going to have a much more versatile game. You pretty much knew what you were going to get with Obina, just standing under the basket, grabbing a ton of rebounds, where Asandako is going to be able to handle the ball a little bit more and potentially shoot from the outside. And that that kind of leads to one of my questions is just how will St. Joe's be able to replace that rebounding protection because they've pretty much been a middle of the pack team the last few years in that regard. Although a lot of that had to do with just Obina's sheer size. So with Asandico and some of these freshmen you mentioned in particular, Finkley and Simmons seem like they can really shore up the interior front court defense. How will that group of young players keep St. Joe's respectable in the paint? Well, this is something that late in last season I would have been terrified of if I was a St. Joe's fan. And this is a St. Joe's team that once Lynn Greer started to play well early in conference play, when they had their starting five out there together, they were at the very least a solid team. But when Casper Klocek was out, they were bad. And when Educa Obina was out, they were awful. They only won one regular season game without Obina the whole year. He missed the last five games of the season, but it was that very last game when Rashir Fleming stepped in and really kind of just started doing 80% of what Obina was giving them from a rebounding and defense perspective while also actually providing a little bit of a versatile offensive skill set. I think Fleming covers up a lot of the potential rebounding problems and Between him and Asandico, like, 
they should have a plus rebounder and a plus defender on the court at the center spot at all times. And that's something that's basically not been true for really any second that Obina wasn't on the court the entire Billy Lang era. And those guys, they're going to have to rely on those two to really cover a lot of holes in both of those regards. Those might be their two best defenders this year. Yeah, and I think with Fleming, too, we always talk about guys making the sophomore leap coming off a promising freshman year, and I think Fleming might be the perfect example of that just with his extreme athleticism, seven foot three wingspan, and so much quickness at six foot nine. And we talked about it a lot last year. He was a young freshman with not a lot of high level basketball experience. So if there was, he would definitely be at the top of the list of breakout candidates in the A10. Shot the three okay last year, just under 30%, although I think that's to be expected for a freshman where that's not really the strength of his game, but agree with you that he's going to have a major role. There's enough Hawks. shooters anyway, though. If he can just be someone that you can't just stand 15 feet away from, then that's enough. Well, I think that's another thing to discuss about the Hawks, though. Once again last year, led the A-10 in three-point attempts, They've lived and died by the three pretty much from the beginning of the Billy Lang era. How do you think that philosophy is going to work? Do they have the shooters to get a lot out of that? So I actually want to go the complete other way with this. And for St. Joe's, for me, I just have one giant overarching question that you can, you could honestly make 15 other sub questions from. And that is how do they diversify what they're good at? Because if we look at this team at the end of December and we say, okay, here's their three best non-conference wins. Why did they win these games? Well, in the past, the answer was basically just, oh, they shot really well that day. And if we're sitting here at Christmas saying, hey, well, they knocked off so-and-so because Reynolds, Greer, and Brown were all hot from three that night, and they just outscored them and raced them out of the gym, then they're headed straight for the 8-9 game. And all we get out of this team this year is – the fact that Eric Reynolds will give us some life on a Wednesday at 11 a.m. in the Barclays Center when the energy's kind of dead. And he's a fun guy for that game, but that's a disappointing season for them. They got to find, they can't just be this jack up threes team all the time. Now, when they go to Rupp, maybe that's their best chance of swinging an upset. But if they keep doing that, all of a sudden there's going to be like a Tuesday night game at home against Rody where they're just going to get punched in the mouth because Reynolds just didn't have it that night. And they're too talented to just go back to that. And to answer your question, I think they do have enough shooters. Like, they're going to win some games because they're just going to jack up threes and get crazy hot. But they don't have enough consistent shooters to just win that way night in and night out. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think part of it, too, is just getting more quality three-point shots because we know they're going to take a lot. And... One thing that actually surprised me quite a bit going back to last year, St. Joe's, I, I feel like you think of them as trying to run a modern offense with Billy Lane coming from the NBA, but they were 14th in the A-10 in assists per made field goals last year. So a lot of isolation, maybe you would expect that with a playmaker like Reynolds, but to me, Lynn Greer has to be one of the most important players on this team, where if he plays like he did down the stretch last year, I mean, his last 10 games were tremendous with six of those being over 20 points. If he can do more of that, I think it will be the best backcourt in the A-10. But they're going to need him to step up it, because I think we've seen, like you described earlier, Reynolds is going to be a lot of fun to watch, but he can't make St. Joe's a good team by himself. Yeah, and by the way, that's conference play only that's that you gave. So that was after Link Rue started playing well. Right. You could at least excuse it if we say, oh, November, December, they're they're just getting such garbage point guard play that that's why it happened. But yeah, he really is the only guy who kind of keeps the ball moving around. And so that kind of doesn't really fully go into my sub questions. But number one is just how do you diversify this offense with kind of an idea on can you find a way to turn Fleming and or Asandico into a low post weapon. Do something that gets the ball moving around. And I think that naturally just starts to generate some more ball movement, but someone else has to be a better assist man for them. In, in, in all honesty, it should be Reynolds. 
Reynolds should be putting up James Bishop level numbers in scoring and assist regard, but honestly more efficient. Maybe it's one of the freshmen. Maybe it's the big guys just getting some kickouts, but they need to figure that out. Yeah, or I feel like it could even be Casper Kozak, who we've hyped up as a Swiss Army knife the last couple of years, and seems like he's always had that building as a good low-post passer. But, I mean, last year his stats were kind of underwhelming there. But I agree, it just seems like for how up-tempo they play, how many threes they're attempting, you'd expect a little bit more ball movement for it to be effective. Yeah, and my last question, and it, it ties into this, how do you get some more ball movement? How do you switch things up? How do these freshmen find a way to contribute? What do they get from them? Because I'll give you another one. If they're starting the same five guys at the end of the year, Greer, Reynolds, Brown, Klawczyk, and Fleming, they're headed to the 8-9 game. The way that this team improves is that someone, whether it's Asandico, whether it's Xavier Brown, has to be better than one of these guys. They have to switch things up because that starting five is, I think they're above average in the league. They're sure as hell also not elite. And that brings me into my X factor real quick here. A young freshman who's gotten very little airtime by the name of Sean Simmons. And a question that I've liked to ask really all the St. Joe's linked people that I've talked to this off season, the people who were, who watch the Philly high school scene, who are hearing the murmurs coming out of that practice. Who's going to be the best perimeter defender. And we heard hoops wise say it, and it's gotten echoed multiple times. Sean Simmons freak athlete, a guy who's going to be able to come in and defend immediately. I think the best case scenario for this team is that he's one of their five guys by the end of the year. And by the way, then that turns Cam Brown probably into the sixth man of the year in this conference, but he's, he also is one of those guys who contributes to that ISO heavy, let's shoot a lot of threes. I think it does this team better if he's coming off the bench, if he's the spark plug around these freshmen when Reynolds and Greer get a blow. And if they can replace him with a defender, I start to believe that this is going to be a top-notch team. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to see what the freshmen bring, especially on defense for this team. And just one more plug. If you Google this year Haskins, like the third result that comes up is a Sports Illustrated article saying he is the best 2024 draft prospect you haven't heard of yet. And kind of seems like the same mold as Rashir Fleming, a 6'9 wing, really skinny but quick, a 3 and D guy. I just seems like someone with a ton of potential. And I think all the freshmen do, especially on the defensive end. Yeah, that's the story of this team, a ton of potential. And you can throw Christian Winborn into that group too. Yeah, Billy Lang still loves him. I mean, every time you hear him talk, seems like a good, like, just teammate, someone who didn't have a ton of success last year, but has potential, like we said. Yeah, and there's a reason why we can go 12 minutes and barely talk about Eric Reynolds. I feel like we, we don't need to. We, we yeah, just we know, know he's, he's their best guy, but there's so much more interesting stuff with this team to talk about. Yeah. All right. So with all that, what would be a good season for St. Joe's? Because it definitely feels like a lot is on the line. This is the toughest one because I think, I think their fans are expecting something pretty good. To me, the minimum baseline is you have to finish top half. If you finish in the bottom half with this roster, just tear it to the ground. But, and this is something that's going to come up with these other two teams here too. Like, okay, great. You finished sixth with a young team, but you're probably losing Reynolds at the end of this year. Like if Eric Reynolds stays, it means he didn't have that great of a season. So, I think if you're a St. Joe's fan, if you finish in the top half and put at least one guy on the all-rookie team, you feel like you had a you you're you're not disappointed in the season. But I think to really be happy, it's it's at least consistently in the double buy race throughout the year. And I think it's probably actually top four. I think it's pretty much top four. I mean, maybe just double digit conference wins would be a huge boost. But then the other point I want to get into 
it has been a long time since the Hawks have done anything of note in the non-conference. I think one of Billy Lane's first games, they beat UConn, and nothing has happened since then. But there's a ton of opportunities. The Hawks play Villanova at Kentucky, Princeton, Iona, College of Charleston. They're, they're going to get another big five game in there somewhere. I'd say out of that group of six games, we need St. Joe's to win at least half of them. Show some excitement in the non-conference. Get people fired up and let people know that you're here. Because if it's another bad non-conference season, it seems hard to expect much once we get to January. Yeah, I want to end this on a quick side note here for any people in tune with Philly Hoops who are listening. Because this has popped in my head multiple times, but the way they're doing the Big Five thing now, where it's first place, third place, fifth place games. So if St. Joe's and LaSalle both go 2-0 and in their pods, like, do we just get three St. Joe's LaSalle games? And because I, I would think that maybe if they're both going to play each other in the third or the fifth place game, maybe then you switch the matchups. But like if they're both in the championship game, you can't switch that around. And that that has not been mentioned to me at all. I it appears that there are no rules preventing them from playing each other on that day. I don't know. I, I still don't understand the new Big Five stuff. We'll just have to wait and see. I guess. Yeah, I mean, the only rule I do know is that they can't be in the same pod with each other. So they'll never automatically play as part of the, the two-game lead-up. But it seems like they very well could play on championship day. All right. Well, that was at least 15 minutes. Let's get on to our second Jesuit team of the night. Are you ready to preview the Last place, Loyola Chicago Ramblers, who are hoping for a much better 2024. Well, the key is much better because better doesn't really mean all that much. This team brings back kind of a a random hodgepodge of guys. They return their two best players in Braden Norris and Philip Alston. They bring back the guy who really kind of I can't really say turned around their season because they still finished in last, but the guy who gave a spark to their season in late January and Ben Schwieger, and then just kind of this random group, Sheldon Edwards, Tom Welch, who's moving in and out of the starting lineup. Uh, the two freshmen, Jaden Dawson, Jalen Quinn back for another run. And this team's, this team's a lot of, I don't want to say weird pieces, but it's a lot of, interesting to funky pieces that I think we've no idea how they're all going to come together and fit together. I think the interesting aspect of the roster though, I know if it was me being a a senior on a team that just finished dead last, got beat up pretty much every night of the season. I don't know if I'd want to be a part of that. And I think it is telling that Braden Norris and Tom Welch came back for their COVID years expecting to have a much improved season. And with that, the Ramblers are bringing in four experienced transfers, Greg Dolan, Des Watson, Damon Delacun, and Patrick Mwamba. All of a sudden, you're taking a team that was among the the worst last year in the A-10, and it's going to be one of the oldest rosters in the conference, which I feel like that's not something you would expect for a team coming off a season like that. Yeah, and that's what I was just saying when we're trying to set expectations later. It's really weird. This team has five guys using their COVID year. And then Dolan's also and then Dolan's a senior, so he could be gone as well. But this could be this is a roster that's gonna look very different next year. And you're almost kind of getting this one year run out of this group, which is weird to say out of a group where you're you're bringing back a bunch of guys from a team that, let's be honest, was truly just trash for like half of last season. Now, let's let's not get it twisted. This roster is way better. And every one of these transfers that they brought in is going to contribute immediately. And I, I think we're going to see a sea change from this team. So they make back-to-back tournaments. They're going into the A-10. And I don't know if it was deliberate from Drew Valentine or if it was him just kind of getting enamored by the fact that he could get better recruits, but you put those two factors together, the fact that they built off of the final four run 
and proved that they were going to be a long-term program. And all of a sudden last year, they had a chance to get these great unpolished athletes that three years ago, Lila would have never had a chance in hell of getting. And they kind of built themselves as this quicker, more athletic team. And they ended up being super sloppy. And now they're going back to the Loyola basics. A bunch of steady hands who are going to keep hold of the ball, who are going to be really smart, and most importantly, who are going to make a lot of twos. The only thing this team did well last season was shoot well from two. They were top 30 nationally in that category, which by their standards is actually pretty awful. The last few Porter Moser years, they were in the top 15 every season. But they go out and get a guy from Dartmouth, guy from Cornell, guy from Davidson. These are schools where even as an athlete, you have to actually be smart to be able to get into. This is going to be one of the most intelligent basketball teams that we're going to witness this year. Yeah, I would hope so. And I, I think you make a great point. That really was the only thing Loyola was so effective at was scoring at the rim and all four of their transfers if you look at the numbers efficient players inside the paint so i think that's going to be a big boost but the problem last year that loyola actually wasn't i mean still shooting a high percentage but their offense was among the worst in the conference just because of the turnover issues and pretty much every player on their roster was turning the ball over a lot more than you would like i think one of the key questions is just how much help can they give Braden norris in the backcourt because Last year, his stats declined from his time in the Missouri Valley. He was playing 36, 37 minutes a, a night, taking more threes than he was before. I think it really does come down to some of the transfers. I mean, Greg Dolan in particular seems like a great example of another sharpshooter to pair with Norris in the backcourt. And then maybe it's one of the rising sophomores, Quinn or Dawson, who we both, I think, have high hopes for. But whether it was injuries or just inconsistency, neither one had a big impact last year. My number one question is very similar. And it goes back to an argument that I had with Tristan Freeman last week on our top 21 players pod, which if you haven't listened yet, go back, listen to that. And that really is, can teams just take out Braden Norris the way they did last year? Where you would see like Duquesne and Dayton did the best of anyone. They're, they're running double teams at them when they had him, when they can, they're putting their best perimeter defenders on him and having them hound him at the half court line because no one else could help them. And this is, it's a question both of what you asked, can having better players around him force defenses to not be able to commit that level of attention to Norris? But also, I feel like he needed to get a little bit stronger this offseason himself. He's a small guy. He's never going to be able to change that. But even if he's getting single teamed against a guy like a Trey Clark, against someone maybe like an Enoch Cheeks on Dayton, guys who are a little bigger who can get really physical with him, he's going to struggle with those matchups unless he is, unless he does come in with a little bit more muscle this season. And I'm just going to be completely honest with it. If Braden Norris is not a significant player for this team, they're a pillow fighter again, plain and simple. If he's not their engine, they will stink. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And even though I don't know if we really need him or if Loyola needs him to put up huge numbers, but he has to be the, the straw that stirs the drink in that offense. And with kind of what we had last year, a whole lot of new faces in the program that it just didn't work out. He's got to be the face of that team, I think, and keeping it together without having a ton of turnovers again this year. I, I think he's probably the best pure passer in this league. And that's not the guy that we watched last year. That's the guy that I watched two years ago in the Missouri Valley. But if it gets back to that, and then to go along with my other question, which is, does this team have enough shooting? And getting Greg Dolan, who was just a dead-eye at Cornell, top 50 in the nation, three-point shooting percentage last year, was a huge, huge late offseason pickup. But other than that, it's a lot of inconsistent guys. I think 40% for Alston last year is probably a ceiling. I don't see that getting better, and quite frankly, I see it probably going down a little bit. But Schwieger was good enough. Des Watson doesn't want to shoot threes. Adela Kuhn can give you a little bit, but he's not going to give you much. Like I'm looking around this likely starting lineup, and 
Braden North is going to have to get back to being around a 40% shooter from deep again. Yeah, I mean, he probably will. Although I don't know how much it matters if they can get back to their elite two-point shooting level from a couple years ago. But I think my biggest... Even uh, just to jump in real quick here, like one of the reasons why they were such a good two-point shooting team at the end of the Missouri Valley years is they had a lot of decent shooters. Williamson was decent. Norris was better than decent. Mm-hmm. And and then they had the two dead eyes. They had Schweiger, not to be confused with Schweiger. And then they had the other Ivy League dude whose name I can't remember right now. But they had two dead eyes and a bunch of solid guys. Now they have one dead eye and a bunch of dudes that I'm not even sure can be solid. Well, we'll see. I, I think if there is a breakout candidate, maybe it is Jalen Quinn. Or Jaden Dawson. I mean, both of those guys at times shot the ball well last year, and neither were in the lineup a ton. Dawson missed pretty much the entire second half of the season. But I think you are right that what um, what Austin did last year probably isn't super sustainable, and it wasn't on a ton of attempts anyway. So they will need another shooters from somewhere. The breakout guy is Jalen Quinn. That's, that's my X factor right there without a doubt. And the reason that I went on that little spiel at the beginning of them getting more athletic and now they're back to the basics is they did keep two of those athletes. Quinn and Dawson are back and they've gotten a summer to get right. And this year, instead of being thrown into the fire, like they were immediately, like quite frankly, if those dudes are as sloppy as they were last season, they're just not going to play. But if they're good, they raised the ceiling of this team. And is great. I, I think this is going to be an unbelievable two-point scoring offense. Adela Kuhn and Alston together in the paint, like there's just no one in this league who has two different guys that they can throw at them on the same night, except maybe Duquesne to defend them. Des Watson cutting around, like they're going to get so many great looks at the basket off of passes and off of post-ups. The only true slasher that they have on this team is Jalen Quinn. And if he can come off the bench for them as a seventh, eighth guy and just give them a spark that really no one else on this roster is capable of, be their their little microwave scorer, even if he's not consistent. If he can just get them, if he can just get them a few tough buckets every game, that changes the trajectory of this team. Because when they just when their offense is dead with 11 minutes left. Other than like throwing a post up, I don't know who they go to and say, hey, we need you to get us a bucket. I think that guy might actually have to be Jalen Quinn. Yeah. Well, I think one of my other big questions about Loyola and kind of, I think Quinn is a good example of this with all these different options that we've talked about and all the experienced transfers coming in, rising sophomores. Will Drew Valentine be able to find some more consistency with his rotation? Because last year is kind of just all over the place. I mean, you have Quinn starting a ton or playing a ton of minutes the first few games of the year, getting benched and then being a starter again in conference play. Guys like Marquise Kennedy getting injured, playing a lot right away. And then all of a sudden he had a couple games where he was hardly getting in at all. Uh, like Bryce Holden suddenly was starting for 12 or yeah, he had a 12-game stretch in January and February where he kind of inexplicably replaced Tom Welch. I feel like if Loyola isn't careful, they could have a similar situation to last year where it is such an old team and you have to have guys buy into their role and figure out where they fit best on the team. And it just seems like with so many different options and with the exception of Alston, potentially, I would say the absence of a true superstar, just how do they balance all of that and having a lot of years of experience on the team? I I mean, I think that they just had the wrong roster last year. And they were dealing with that with the transition to the A-10. And I'm willing, if they come out of the gates and play well this year, I'm willing to basically just write off last year as just a, a roster construction screw up. But I think to make your po- drive your point home, like the best example is Sheldon Edwards, mm-hmm. who we thought might be their leading score going into last year. Opening night scores 19 and 27 minutes, certainly looked to be the part, played big minutes their next three games, 
and then didn't play more than 11 again until the last three games of the season. And by the way, was awesome last two games of the regular season and then awful in the pillow fight game against St. Joe's. Yeah, I so mean, how many it, guys like, go from not playing to scoring 25 against And LaSalle by the way, I don't think Sheldon Edwards can be in the rotation on this team. He's back. I think he's going to get buried. But yeah. they just, they never had the right team. And so Valentine just desperately had to look for combination after combination all year long. And so that brings us into the expectation for this year. For me, I think it's double by contention. I think late in February, we have to say, hey, this team can still get to fourth place. Because I don't have sky high expectations for them, but they need to prove that they belong in the A-10. And Drew Valentine needs to prove that he's the coach that was being hyped up last year. And now part of it was he's a young coach who came from the Tom Izzo tree who made the NCAA tournament in his first season. So immediately the national media is going to grab that and start talking about how he's going to be in the Big Ten in three years. Well, he turned it around his first year with his own roster. They were terrible. So I think it's time for Drew Valentine to go out there and say and announce to this conference, hey, we are an A-10 team and I am an A-10 coach. And clearly being a top half team, being someone who is a threat from the beginning of the year on does that. Yeah, I would echo all of your sentiments about being a double by contender. And then my other goal that I think Loyola should have is an expectation with all of these talented transfers coming in, they need to put at least one of them on the all conference teams. I mean, I, I think we can say, and you, you got into it with their roster construction last year, how it just didn't work, even though they seemingly brought in some skilled players. Like Valentine swung and miss on all the transfers last year. And if that happens again, then they're headed straight for a bottom three or four finish, I would say. I, I'd agree on that. So let's take it to last year's Cinderella, everyone's favorite story by the end of the season. The Fordham Rams, who do lose their two best players, but they bring back a, a pretty good group. Will Richardson, Kyle Rose, Antrell Charlton, Abdu Simbila, uh, Zach Riley, and a whole bunch of those random guys from their great freshman class of last year who all kind of played sparing minutes. They're going to have all have an opportunity to come out and really make a difference this season. Ramad Dean, Angel Montas, Elijah Gray. But two really big holes to fill. We'll see if Fordham could do it year two of the Keith Ergo era. Yeah, it has to be one of the most exciting off seasons or just periods of time to be a Fordham fan. And really the Rams are in a much different situation than the two other teams we've talked about in this episode because they are coming off a great season, a historic season for the Rams. And like you said, they, they have two huge holes to fill in the starting lineup, losing Darius Quisenberry and Khalid Moore. But, I mean, hopes need to be high, and like the other teams we've talked about, they hit the transfer portal pretty hard. They have a couple more freshmen coming in. And I, I think the key for Fordham, as much as any team we've talked about in the last five or six years of doing this podcast, it is absolutely critical for them to keep the momentum going from last season because it was a completely different Fordham program and experience that we've ever seen. Yeah, and they're going to be able to keep the momentum going on defense. And for anyone who doesn't remember, this was an elite defense come conference play, finishing second in Ken Palm in defensive efficiency behind just VCU. They were top four in every single category, except for the fact that they, they fouled a ton. And that just had a lot to do with their centers and not having Rostislav Novitsky helps them a little bit in that category. But with Simbilla and Gray back again, I assume that they will be a little bit hack happy again this season. But they bring back basically all their best defenders besides more, besides Khalid Moore. Rose, Charlton, Simbilla, Will Richardson. Quisenberry was 
an average to slightly above average defender, but they're not going to miss him on that end. And I think they're going to be a great lockdown team this year. They're going to, that's going to propel them at least good enough to keep Rose Hill packed and keep those fans interested, but whether or not they can truly ascend is going to come down to the offense. And so my first question for that, do they have a guy that can carry them on that end? I think Will Richardson could be that guy. We talked last week. It seems like maybe Jafet Madore, the grad transfer point guard, could be that guy. But with Rose and Simbilla playing big minutes again, we know what those guys are on offense. They're not going to give you much. I think Antrell Charlton is still a guy who can give you some solid contributions on that end, but he's certainly never going to be anyone who can be a first or second option there. Yeah, I mean, really, that that's kind of the same as my first question. Just who can replace Quisenberry's production to in particular? And I think Richardson, I mean, we both, you like him more than me from our last podcast, but he's really the one guy on this roster that we know can shoot the three coming in at 42% last year. And as a team, too, the Rams were the only squad in the conference to be under 30% in conference price. So they desperately need him to keep that up. But I think with Jafet Madour, kind of an unheralded transfer compared to some other guys around the league. But coming in from UTSA is an all-conference USA honorable mention. And what I'm just really excited about with him, last year in what was his first Division I season, too, as a senior, took over 60% of his field goal attempts at the rim. He is a guy that is going to penetrate, get in the lane, make plays happen. And that's just not something that we saw a lot of from Fordham last year. Even with Quisenberry, who only took about a third of his shots at the rim, this isn't a guy who is going to massively improve the Rams' three-point shooting. But I do think he is going to be able to score off the dribble as well as most players in the conference. And I think that's going to be absolutely necessary to open up the floor because – Otherwise, Fordham doesn't have a whole lot of guys who can create on their own. Yeah, and four assists a game as well. And you need that type of production to get offensive assistance from guys like Simbilla and Rose, who are going to be reliant on just the ball finding them in the right open area. But I do want to go back to Richardson because my favorite stat with him, their last two chances against the other two truly elite defenses in this conference Late in the regular season, they go down to VCU, 6 of 10 from 3 for 21 points. And then that raucous semifinal game in the Barclays against Dayton, 16 points on that night as well. This is a guy who, when he watched, would would tend to sit back and defer to Quisenberry pretty often last year. And when he was called upon, he delivered. The fact that he had so many low-scoring games late in the season is mostly attributed to the fact that he didn't shoot much in a lot of those games. So this is somebody that when the ball is in his hands, when he is needed to score, he's come through. I think with Richardson, though, I mean, obviously he, he's been the most kind of well-known freshman from last year on the Rams, but I'm just excited to see what the other sophomores now on Fordham's team can bring. I mean, guys like Angel Montas, who's hurt a lot of the season, Elijah Gray, Romad Dean, all getting not a ton of playing time and not making a huge impact. But I think it is telling that Ergo is getting them in the game about eight to 10 minutes a night. And all, you know, wings with some size that I think can continue to help Fordham have in a, a well above average defense, both on the perimeter and inside. Just interested to see. I, I don't want those guys to get lost in the discussion because looking at the roster, I feel like it is going to be a team that runs pretty deep again next year. Well, it's like St. Joe's. We have all these massive young question marks and the start the starting line is going to be good for this team. Well, really the top six. We're looking at Richardson, Rose, Charlton, Medor, Simbilla. And then Josh Rivera, who we'll talk about a little bit later, who I assume will be their starting power forward. But then beyond that, it is just all these really talented young dudes that we kind of know nothing about. Elijah Gray was really the only one from that group that we saw play consistent minutes. And 
he was mostly just being sent in as an emergency center when they just needed another body out there and really wasn't asked to do much. And which kind of leads me to my favorite stat that I found starting to research these teams. He played 222 minutes last year and had zero assists. I, I don't know that's possible. Like, I don't know how you don't get one by accident. And he did turn the ball over 15 times, but that helps keep the uh, assist to turnover rate non-existent there if you just don't have any assists. Yeah, well, it's hard to hard to get assists when no one on your team can make any shots. But yeah, I mean, just with all those options, it is going to be interesting who really fills Khalid Moore's role because that's who got the bulk of the minutes at the four. You mentioned Josh Rivera, who I think we both agree is one of the more exciting transfers. The key stat I took away, and I know you're going to have a, a ton of information on him, but as a freshman last year at Lafayette, he led the Patriot League in usage rate. And that's just not something you expect from a freshman. He was very early on in his career, a key player. And I think he's shown, I mean, we'll see how it translates to a higher level, but he's shown that he's capable with the ball in his hands. Yeah. And he's my X factor without a doubt, because he has huge, huge shoes to fill with Khalid Moore, who should have been first team all conference. And I'll just continue to say this. It's ridiculous. He was third team. He was undoubtedly one of the five best guys in the A-10 last year. And he's going to be badly missed no matter how good Rivera is. But he's a guy that you go on, you watch his highlight package, and he looks kind of like Khalid Moore. He's got a decent shot. He's a really nice driver of the basketball for his size. Somebody who's going to go rebound. Like, this this is a guy who Keith Ergo went out and found, I think, probably envisioning a very similar role to how Moore played. By the way, uh, 2.7% block rate, 6.6 power forward, that's pretty good. This is a a guy who's going to be expected to be an all-around contributor for them from the jump. Yeah, and I think, too, you look at his overall season stats, like 10 and 5, it seems all right, especially for, for a freshman, but down the stretch... I mean, he went up to 15 points. He didn't play game. much. He didn't yeah. play much like the first month of the year. It, screw, it screws up his averages. Yeah, I mean, really picked it up in conference play last year and just a, a well-rounded player. I mean, points, rebounds, blocks. I mean, even a couple assists per game. So, yeah, certainly seems like someone, even though Fordham has a lot of options, who can play on the wings and fill that Khalid more void. Feels like he's the most proven out of those options. Yeah, and by the way, he's a guy who goes to the line a lot too, which is something that Fordham really just wasn't that great at last year. I mean, they was better than I thought, actually. Top 100 uh, in the nation, but that was largely due to the two guys they lost. So they're going to need Rivera to help out there. But to close it out, my, just my other question, can this team find a way to slow the turnovers? Because they were below average nationally in turnover percentage last year. And the only reason they weren't awful is because Quisenberry was just so great at protecting the ball. Well, now you lose him and the uh, assisted turnover numbers for Rose, Simbilla, Richardson, Gray, as we talked about, they're not that great. Um, All those guys actually negative in that category. Charlton, racked up the assists, but also racked up the turnovers last year as well. So they're going to have to find a way to take care of the ball. And that's probably going to start and end with Medor. Yeah, he'll, he'll be important. I think he's probably the most like pure point guard on the roster, but I mean, as long as he's just like, I mean, he, I don't know. It's expecting a lot for him to be the player Quisenberry was, but as long as he just serves that role as a ball handler, I, I don't even know how much it matters I I still think Fordham's a team that at their best they're going to win on the strength of incredible physical defense and I think expecting this team to be better than an average offense is frankly unfair but I I think they're okay with that because it has the potential to be another excellent defensive and rebounding team and if they do find themselves back at the top of the conference I think that's going to be why I really any offensive production and improvements and turnovers and shooting would be great, but 
it just seems a lot less realistic than the Rams being the best defense in the league. Yeah, they're not going to replace more in Quisenberry's offense. It's just not going to happen on a one-for-one. They just It's going to be what can Medor and Rivera give them, and then can the improvements from Charlton and Richardson, along with the fact that I think Angel Montas is going to be a huge piece of this team, can those three kind of cobble enough together to bridge that gap? So we, we talked about it a little bit in the intro, but it is kind of tough to figure out expectations for Fordham because the fans are pretty juiced up right now, excited for another big year. Although losing to all conference players is going to hurt a lot. So what is fair to expect for the Rams this year? I think it's almost too pronged. I think it's a huge disappointment if they're not at least 500, just given all the guys that they bring back. But at the same time, like if you're the Fordham fan base, are you that picky? Like you lost your two best players. Are you going to be really that bummed if they're the eighth place team, but they still give you some fun games along the way. But for me, there's another element of you need someone between Richardson, Montas, Dean, Gray, and Rivera. All of these young guys that represent your future core, all of whom are going to have two more years of eligibility left after this. One of them needs to be an all-conference player this year. Because Keith Ergo, it's been, it's been clear from day one, unbelievable locker room guy. Pretty good recruiter. And I think he proved to all of us last year that he's a good in-game coach. But in year one, you cannot prove whether or not you have the number one most important skill for a mid-major coach, which is long-term player development. And if he can elevate a few of those young, talented guys and set a foundation so that next year, all you got to do is go out, replace Medor, go find another center, and just kind of pick up some transfers and maybe a talented freshman or two along the way, but that you have a core going into next season that can be winners. Because they're losing all their heart and soul role-player guys at the end of this year. And it's great that they got Rose, Charlton, Simbilla back now, and those guys should keep them from being bad no matter what, but you got to find who your leaders are outside of that group. Yeah, I think those are very fair expectations and hopes for what you want to see on the court. For me, the expectations lie more in just the culture of the program. And I kind of started off this discussion on Fordham, how it's crucial for them to keep the momentum and excitement from last year. I really want to see Fordham sell out multiple conference games like they did last year. We need to get to February and still have people in the Bronx excited about this team. And then as a secondary goal, I mean, man, if we could see Fordham back in the A-10 semifinals, filling up the Barclays Center like they did, taking that over, that was the biggest moment for the Fordham basketball program since they joined the A-10. And it's definitely going to be difficult to attain, but just having that home court advantage in the A-10 tournament again would be such a huge lift to them. And it would certainly be fun to watch again too. Yeah. And even a half step down, if this is a sixth place team this year, I would hope that the Fordham fans are properly appreciative of what's starting Mm -hmm. to be built this year. Like if they meet my expectations, then I would hope that they are selling out their games all throughout February and, Maybe we don't replicate a 90% Fordham fans in the lower bowl on a Saturday semi environment. But you got to remember two nights before for the quarterfinals, it was what, 65, 70% full of Fordham fans down there? It yeah. wasn't quite the same level, but it was still incredibly ruckus by A10 tournament standards. And if you can mimic that, if it's Thursday night and you're back in the quarterfinals, and there is an overwhelming amount of Fordham fans in the building, then you're going somewhere. Yeah, I I really think the first step toward Fordham not being a punching bag in the league is having a lot of people who care. And at the end of last season, we finally had that for the first time in years. Yeah, we'll see with all of these teams. If I had to predict right now, I'd say one of them ends up top four and one of them's going to end up being bad. 
I think, yeah, I, I, have, I think that's fair. I have no idea which one it is at this point. I'd be I'd be surprised if none of these teams were top four. I mean, we talked about the so-called favorites earlier, but well, I don't... someone has to jump in for the Bonnies. And I only say this now because I'm getting bombarded on Twitter while we record because West Pine uh, got salty apparently. Well, at least we'll have a different uh, differing opinions on the Bonnies, maybe, but but we'll see. Yeah, somebody's got to jump up, and honestly, I just. <laughs> Maybe it's one of the new roster teams, but I just don't have enough faith in any of the eight that we're going to do these next two weeks. Although, God, I keep talking myself more and more into George Mason. I'm going to need... I kind of really like that team right now. Yeah. Well, this will be fun. I mean, we'll use the next two episodes to try talking ourselves into any of those teams, although... I don't know, at least with the brand new teams, it's kind of the unknown of excitement. Some of the teams we have coming up next week are going to be a little just kind of, well. Yeah, but we will see. Like I mentioned earlier, come back next week, we'll be talking about the rebuilding teams. Uh, LaSalle, St. Louis. Davidson. Davidson, who I'm... Davidson, who I'm weirdly like semi talking myself into, but I I could just oh, no. go at any moment. And uh, Richmond. All right. And be sure to go back listen to some of our prior episodes. We did top twenty one players with Tristan Freeman last week. We want to go back farther. John Rothstein, Johnny from the Bluff Blog, Ronald Polite, Hawk Hill Hardwood. Just the names popping into my off the top of my head. All great off season episodes but matt before we fully close this one out anything else you want to add in on these teams uh not on these teams but i do have a grievance and we've talked about this but i haven't put my thoughts to the podcast yet uh this is something actually coincidentally none of the three teams talked about tonight although i've noticed this when researching other teams college basketball is the wild west and i'm specifically referring to jersey numbers because the numbers six, seven, eight, and nine are now allowed. You're seeing it on roster web pages. And I just wanted to say, as someone who is not used to this from watching the NBA, I'm kind of sickened. And it, it might be a bad take, but it's just something that I, I never expected to happen to our great game. Yeah. And for anyone new to the pod, uh, Matt has to have some sort of clothing related grievance. And I think you've finally just given up on all the coaches going back to wearing suits. Yeah, that's my other bad. So I hate, like the but... I like that you found a replacement for this. I actually semi agree. I still believe that the ref should be able to hand signal a foul number. So I believe that six, seven, eight, nine should be allowed. But I hate like, and then also I can go for a really wacky like Ron Artest like a 77 or a 99, like something that's just so stupid that it's actually kind of reasonable. But where I start to hate it is when you get like 17, 29, like this isn't football. No, it's just, it's like pitchers don't wear single digit numbers. Like quarterbacks don't wear number 86. Like there's just, there's rules for these things. We live in a society, and it's it's gone in college basketball. Yeah, but NFL players can wear single digits now too. So that, that's at least been a thing in college for a long time. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I like that one either. But that's another discussion. We can end it there. And end it there. We shall. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Three Bid League Pod. If you have any comments, if you are a St. Joe's Loyola or Fordham fan who want to set our expectations straight, or if you have a comment on Jersey number gate here, you can reach out to us on Twitter at the number three bid league pod. You can shoot us an email three bid league at gmail.com if you prefer, or if you are on blue sky, we are on there and basically don't use it, but I do check it at least once a week. We're on there at three bid league pod dot blue sky social so be sure to go follow us on there be sure to give us five stars on itunes if you enjoyed the show leave us a comment on there if you didn't let us know what we could be doing better and we would appreciate it if you don't put a star rating to that but be sure to continue listening we'll have our team previews coming out every week 
So be sure to enjoy this fall weather and get excited for the start of college basketball.